theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated in the merit of Harav Reb Shmuel Ben Sarah Peril for a Rafu Shlema, Rafu Kroeva, a complete and speedy recovery, Larichis Yaman Vashanam Taivas, with abundant health, happiness, prosperity, Betaiva Niriva Nekla, Machnachasruach, and all the challenges should be transformed into blessings and enjoy with his Rebbetson. Many, many happy, healthy years with abundance, Brachavatz Locha, Betaiva Niriva Nekla, Adbli Dai. Amen, Kenyi In the previous class, Monday, we began the Maimer, the Hasidic discourse by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, V'yitim l'choha elikim, that was said on Shabbos Teldus, Tovshin Chavches, which would be 19, the end of 1967. And uh, it focused on the opening of the blessings of Yitzchak to Yaakov. Yitzchak thought he was Esav. V'yitim l'choha elikim, Hashem, should give you from the fat of the heavens and from the from the dew of the heavens and the fat of the earth. The question that was raised is that generally the bracha's blessings come from the name Yutke Vavke, which is the name of compassion and generosity, as we see in the priestly blessings of Arechecha Hashem Yishmarecha, etc. All three verses of the priestly blessings mention Hashem's name as Yutke Vavke. When it comes to these blessings, though, it says, V'yitin l'cha ha'eleikim. Eleikim should give you, and eleikim is midas hadin, eleikim is the attribute of judgment. It would seem that blessings relate more to the other name of Hashem, Yudkei Vavke. This question is also about the first blessing that Yitzchak receives, not just the blessing that he gives, the blessing that he receives after the passing of his father, Avram. It says, V'yivarech eleikim es Yitzchak b'noi. Eleikim blessed Yitzchak his son. All the blessings of Hashem to his father Avram, the name Yutke Vavke is mentioned. For example, Avram Zakim Baba Yamim, Vahashem Beireches Avram Bakal, not Eleikim. And the same is true with all the other blessings to Avram, and Lech Lecha Vayera But the first blessing that Yitzchak receives after the passing of Avram, the language, the Torah, the language the Torah uses, the phraseology is Vayivarech Eleikim Es Yitzchak The main point that was explained and I'm not going to repeat the explanation because it, w- it was lengthy, just the key point. Based on a mimer of the Balatanya, Rosh Hashanah, where he explains that Gvura is not like many people think Gvura is detachment, like I don't have time for you, I don't have space for you, I, I create boundaries in which I somewhat disconnect from you. Chesed is all about love and Gvura is about uh, withdrawal. Discipline, sternness, judgment, severity, strength. The truth is that Gvura is a, even a deeper form of attachment. It's even a deeper form of attachment than Chesed. And it's because I care so much, it's because I'm so in tuned with you and your needs, therefore I create a structure that will serve you well. And this is a very powerful idea, that real structures, real discipline is not about carelessness, it's about caring more. Chesed sometimes, I overlook flaws. I want to give. Gvura is actually tuning in to what you need, what will serve you most, and therefore filtering my flow in a way that actually suits you. Chesed is, you know, you just open the flow and it goes and it goes. Maybe it's good for the person, maybe it's not good for the person. Gvura actually is, requires much more concentration, much more attentive tuning into the other person's needs. That's the essence of holy discipline. Holy discipline is not about 
I'm in a strict mood now. <laughs> I don't have time for you, I don't have space for you. On the contrary. And therefore, the hashpa, the flow that comes from Gvura, is actually much more intense. For that very reason, there is discipline, there are boundaries. As I explained in the previous class, And therefore, the primary blessings in Torah you see come from Yitzchak, who the Zayar associates with the level of Gvura. And that's the meaning, it says, after Avram's death, Eloikim blessed Yitzchak. In the time of Avram, the quality that shined in the world was chesed, because Avram was the tzaddik of the generation. After his death, when the new type of energy that was primarily manifested was the energy of gvura, so now the blessings come from Eloikim, which is midas ha which is even deeper and higher blessings. And that's why Yitzchak blesses Yaakov with the words, v'yitam l'cha ha'eloikim. But in chapter 3 he added that the blessings of Yitam Lecha Aleikim are even greater than the blessing of Aleikim blessing Yitzchak. Because that blessing goes automatically to Yitzchak and both of his children, Yaakov and Esau, which is the reason that Avram didn't want to give that blessing. And Hashem had to come and bless him. The blessing of Yitam Lecha Aleikim is not something that would go on its own to both children. That means it's even a greater blessing and a deeper blessing, which is why Yaakov worked very hard and he did things uncharacteristic of his nature in order to receive these blessings, even though there was already the blessing that he receives because Hashem blessed his father Yitzhak and that blessing flows to the children as we explained Rashi says over there because there's something even deeper about V'yitam L'cha'alik. Now begins the actual explanation of all of this and we're holding chapter 4, if Dalad or Oiz Dalad in this Maimer, if you're in your source sheets, you open your source sheets, it's uh, page Shid Mem in the source sheet. Dala, the middle of the page. All of this will be understood and explained by introducing first the Maimer the, the of the Alter Rebbe in the Sefer Torah. Everybody knows that the Balatanya Rabbi of Liadi, his main Svarim and Chumash are Torah and Lakuta Torah. Torah is Bereshit Shmois, Lakuta Torah is Vayikr Bamid Badvarim and Shir Hashirim. And this Maimon now is going to take us on a journey to excavate and explore a central idea of the Alter Rebbe in this week's Torah Eir and Parshas told us, the famous Maimon, Re'ei Re'ach B'ni K'Re'ach Sada Shebirach Hashem. When Yitzchak smells, he snuffs the aroma of Yaakov who comes in with the food, he says, the aroma of my son is like the aroma, like the smell of the field blessed by Hashem. This is the Maimon Torah Eir Parshas told us. We actually learned it a few years ago, this Maimir, the Alter Rebbe asks the famous question of how Yitzchak really saw Esav, as we'll see in a moment. And really to understand everything that we're going to be learning now. And anyway, regardless, it's a very good idea to review that Maimir because it's extremely fundamental in understanding the whole perspective of who Esav is and who Yaakov is and what Yitzchak thought and what Rivka thought. Here he's going to give a, a brief uh, he's going to explore one brief point of that Maimer. But that Maimer you could learn, we have it also on the website, on the yeshiva.net. In, uh, if you go to Torah, and uh, in Torah this Torah Eid, and in Torah this Toldus, you'll see the Maimer over there. There's a few classes. So if you've been back, this will be understood by prefacing what is explained in Torah Eid, in our parasha Toldus, and in other Maimarim, in other Drushim, other expositions, the Zesher, Otsu Yitzchak, Lavarach, Even though 
The question is, why did Yitzchak so eagerly want to bless Esau? So the common explanation that most teachers will explain to the children learning this story for the first time is that Yitzchak was deceived. In other words, Esau feigned, he acted well, he camouflaged himself as a great, holy, righteous person. And therefore Yitzchak was, so to speak, deceived into thinking that Esau deserves these great lofty spiritual blessings. But there's a major problem with this thesis, and the Alter Rebbe points it out in that Maimer. What is it? When Yaakov comes with the food, and Yitzchak says, how did you do it so fast? And Yaakov explains that Hashem has helped him do it. So Yitzchak says, there's something strange. This doesn't sound like Esau. And later he says, Hakol kol Yaakov. It's the voice of Yaakov. And Rashi explains, because Yitzchak knew that Esau does not mention Hashem's name. Or at least not commonly. Shem Shamayim is not common in his mouth. This is what Rashi himself says about Yitzchak. That he knew there is something strange. Esau is not mentioning God's name. So if somebody is mentioning God's name, it doesn't sound like Esau. Now, <laughs> when you know that a certain child doesn't mention Hashem's name, that means Yitzchak knew exactly who Esau was. If Esau is such a big tzaddik and he never mentions Hashem's name, that's strange. So we have a paradox. On one hand, he, he feels so great about Esau. On the other hand, he clearly knows that Yaakov is on a completely different level. Yaakov mentions Hashem's name and Esau not. Now, you might say, you might say, that when Rashi says, Ein Shem Shamayim Shagur Befiv, which is Rashi chapter 27, verse 21, he means it's not common in his mouth. He may mention it once a day, twice a day, and it's not frequently. Yaakov mentions it frequently. But take a look in footnote 14. In the Medrash Rabbah it says, What Yitzchak said is, I know Esav never mentions Hashem's name. Interesting. This must be also the meaning in Rashi, that Esav never mentions Hashem's name. Because if Rashi means that Esav mentions Hashem's name, but just infrequently, then the fact that Esav said once, Hashem helped me bring this food, would not prove that he's not Esav. If Esav never mentions Hashem's name, even one mention of God already creates this doubt in Yitzchak's mind. Who is this? Is this Esav or not? But if Esav sometimes, albeit infrequently, does mention Hashem's name, so why was Yaakov, why was Yitzchak confused from Esav mentioning, Esav mentioning Hashem's name just once? So from here we understand when the Rashi says, it means that Esav never mentions Hashem's name. So the question now is, if Yitzchak understood this about Esav, so he knew who Esav was. In fact, the Pasa clearly says that Esav married, and his wives were a source of terrible aggravation for Yitzchak and Rivka. So did Yitzchak really think that Esav married women who are completely opposite of him? <laughs> completely opposite of him, as Rashi says, they would fill the home with idolatry and the aroma of pagan idolatry, and Yitzchak was terribly aggravated from it. So obviously Yitzchak saw, and he understood. He wasn't naive, and he was not deceived, Chalila, by Esav. 
So the Alter Rebbe explains that Yitzchak understood there's two elements to Esav. Esav himself needed moral help, but Esav had very profound divine energy inside of him, trapped. And he wanted to bless him, not just to squander a blessing. He wanted to confer on Esav, on Oyer Elyon. Oyer Elyon is a great light, a great love and a great energy that will inspire the dormant sparks that are embedded in him. No, sounds like a great idea. So why did Rivka disagree? Ella continues the Rebbe, Shepi'im hayanim shecharizal Esav, shaloyayadei Yaakov, hayabechad b'shnei ponim. However, if this light that Yitzchak wanted to draw down on Esav to trigger and awaken and resurrect, so to speak, the inner sparks in him, if it would have been communicated to Esav not through Yaakov, one of two things would have happened. Either this tremendous energy would be swallowed up in Esav, and therefore squandered, or if it wouldn't be swallowed up, it would obliterate him because it was too intense. In order to sublimate Esav and ultimately bring out his sparks, it has to be a process that Esav can integrate without without overwhelming him and without the energy becoming swallowed up and destroyed inside of him. And this has to happen throughout history through Yaakov. Therefore Hashem allowed this and orchestrated this in a way that Yitzchak should give the blessings to Yaakov. I, he wants to give them to Esav, they go to Esav. Because they'd go to Esav. But he gave these tremendous lights, which is intimated through these words, the dew of heaven and the fat of the land. It's not just the physical dew and the physical fat. It represents, these are metaphors, like everything in Torah, it's an allegory also, for tremendous spiritual intense divine lights to go to Yaakov, through which he will be able to ultimately elevate and bring to the fore and arouse the lofty, extraordinary divine sparks in Esau. The Chavra Toifus, you understand what he's saying? Give an example. Yitzchak sees there's something very special in Esav. The problem is Esav himself doesn't see it. Esav himself is not so aware of it. These are tremendous sparks that are lofty, but they're trapped. And therefore they're dormant. So Yitzchak is not naive, he knows exactly who Esav is. And that's why he could say Esav doesn't mention Hashem's name. But within Esau, there is deep light, there is deep potential, there is deep energy that he himself is not conscious of. And Yitzchak can see it clearly, and Yitzchak wants to bless him in order to bring out those nitzutzes, those sparks. And Yitzchak is right, and that's why the Torah gives us the story of Yitzchak and his perspective, not to tell us he was wrong, to tell us that he was right. If he was right, how could Rivka be right? Yitzchak was right and Rivka was right. Yitzchak is speaking about the truth. He is describing the ideal situation. You don't give up on Esav because there are nitzutzes there. There's deep sparks there. In reality, Rivka was the master of execution, of implementation. Yitzchak represents the dream 
And Rivka represents how we're going to implement that dream. How are we going to implement that dream? The blessings have to go through Yaakov. And through Yaakov, they're going to be transmitted to Esav. Why? Because if this light would directly be communicated to Esav, not through Yaakov, one of two things can happen. Either Esav will absorb the light but swallow it up and it will be squandered and scattered. An example for that would be, I mean, I don't know if it's a perfect example, it's probably not, but it just just comes to mind. You know, sometimes you see somebody who's in addiction and you really want to help them. So you give them a handsome amount of money and you say, here, go. This is money to go to a rehab center. Go into rehab and get your life together. Now, the addict may have a part that's really drawn to that, but what is he going to do with the money? Anybody knows? What happens often? He may just take your money and spend it on buying more destructive substances or engaging in more destructive behavior. Because he's an addict or she's an addict. So I can't just give very good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Very good. Our friend from Pakistan writes, most likely they will get more drugs. Most likely they'll get more drugs. Yes. And that's the reason I can't just give you the money. Why? Not because I don't believe that you have tremendous potential, but because in practicality, this money is going to go to waste. This energy that you're going to give Ace of, he simply doesn't have the mechanism to integrate it into his system. Or, conversely, the opposite will happen. He will just become overwhelmed completely. There won't be Ace of left. He'll become like a spiritual zombie, if I could say that. His Metsias would be in his battle from the tremendous air. It won't be integrated. In order to integrate it, it has to go to Yaakov. And through Yaakov, Esav will ultimately be sublimated. And this is now Yaakov's tremendous duty and responsibility. Which now brings us to the next step. Hey. Now comes the big question. What is this great light that allows the sparks of Esav to emerge, to be elevated, to be sublimated? What is this great light? It says that Yitzchak knew that there are sparks and he wants to help of access them and therefore he confers upon him these extraordinary blessings. But ultimately it has to go through Yaakov. That's why it gets orchestrated in a different way and Rivka is the one who understands that. What are these lights that can help of find himself, his true self? This will be understood based on what the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, explains in Torah or in this Maimah that we're speaking about, and in other Jerusalem and other Hasidic discourses, that klipois, klipois means shells, husks, which is basically the word that's used to describe all the forces in the world that conceal the true essence of divinity in the world. So they are associated very often with number 11. In Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, this is a known concept. Holiness is very much associated with the number of ten. There's an expression in Sefer Yitzira, Perik Aleph, the first chapter of Sefer Yitzira, as he put, points out in footnote 16, that there is ten and not nine, ten and not eleven. 
Sitra Achara. Sitra Achara means the other side. The other side means the side, people or things that are antithetical to holiness. So the Kabbalah describes their, them as having 11 crowns of impurity. Misavusa in Aramaic is Tuma. There are 11 crowns of impurity. Not 10, but 11. This is the reason that in the daily incense that was burnt in the Mishkan and the Beis in the morning and in the afternoon, not known as Ketairis, and we speak about it every morning. There were various herbs that were harvested and grounded into powder. This is known as the Ketairis, and it had a particular measurement how much they used to take from each one of these herbs, and then they would mix them together. And you had 11 types of samemonim, 11 types of herbs. And each morning in the Beis HaMikdash, there was a special avoider known as the avoider of the Ketoyres, of burning this incense, placing hot coals from the altar on, hot coal from the altar onto the incense, generating a major aroma. How many herbs were used every day? This potion, this mixture, this compound had 11 herbs. And we say them every day, right? We say, We go through all of them. And the weight of how much was used, The last one. Eleven herbs. Why eleven? The answer is, because the purpose of the Ketoyeris was to refine, to elevate the 11 crowns of impurity. Not 10, 11. Why this difference? What's the meaning of this? Holiness is associated with 10, unholiness with 11. Why does Sitra why does unholiness come with 11? Who? Because we count also the divine energy that gives life to the klipa. The bigdusha, when it comes to holiness, the vitality of the ten spheres. The ten spheres represent the ten divine characteristics with which Hashem creates and sustains and relates to the universes. So by holiness... The divine energy of known as the ten spheres, the ten divine characteristics. And the same is true with every item of holiness, which is always associated with number ten. As the Reb Moshekher de Vero, the Ramak explains in his classic, in the Pardis, as he says in footnote 18, portal two of the Pardis, that everything in Kedusha is always associated with ten. We also see Chazal say that you don't say a Dover you need the minion, the ten, in order to say Baruch to say Kedusha, to say Kaddish. Because Kedusha is associated with ten. So the vitality of the Kedusha, the energy is integrated internally within the characteristics of each sphera and becomes one with them and therefore it's not counted independently. So there's no number 11. Hashem can when it comes to unholiness. They also have divine energy. But But the energy that gives them life and vivifies them remains aloof. 
Because if the energy of the divine would be integrated in Klippa, in an organized and structured way, it would ultimately be swallowed up by them and dissolve, and it wouldn't be able to give them chius. Why? You understand what he's saying? This is very deep. And that's why in Klippa there's number 11 outside of number 10. This is a very, very powerful idea. What's the difference of Kedusha and Klippa? I want you to understand this well. Kedusha is 10, Klippa is 11. Why? So the Rebbe explains. What's the difference? Kedusha means holiness. Klippa means a shell, a husk. A shell and a husk eclipse that which is inside of it, right? A banana peel protects the banana. It also conceals the banana, just as an orange peel and just like a walnut. And you have to break the shell in order to access the walnut. Anything that eclipses, eclipses the true reality of what it really is, of Ein Oid Molvade, that it's really a derivative of divine consciousness, that's called Klippa. Kedusha is transparency. Klippa is cover-ups. Anything that its existence is based on a cover-up, that's called Klippa. In other words, to put it bluntly, anything that if you would remove all the cover-ups, it would not exist, that's called Klippa. The reason it exists is because there's a cover-up. In a very practical sense, what does this mean? This means when I am in a mode, yeah, let's say my thoughts are taking me into a place that tells me that I'm detached from God, that I'm a loser, that I'm hopeless, that I'm a nebuch case, that I'm a shmata, that I'm unsalvageable, that I'm damaged goods. Those thoughts you can define as real clipper thoughts. Why? What's the message of those thoughts? Those me- the message of those is you're detached from Hashem. In other words, they cover up the truth. What's the truth? The truth is that you're always one with God because God is everywhere and everything. Like we say in Davening, you give life to everything. Your presence is in everybody and in everything and it vibrates through every single one of your 70 trillion cells. And through each of your hundred billion neurons, and in each molecule, and in every gene, it's full of divine sacred energy, and you're a manifestation of divine infinity and divine love and divine compassion. That's the truth. And when you're feeling that, that's Kedusha. That is holiness. Any thought, any word, any action that mirrors this truth about you and the world, that you are a manifestation of divine love and infinity, that's Kedusha. Transparency. Any thought, emotion, instinct, word or action, that belies that truth, that eclipses that truth, and basically makes you feel that you're detached, you're separated, you're not part of infinity, that's Klippa. There's a cover-up. It's also called Sitra Acher. What allows Klippa to exist? What allows Klippa to exist is that it's not consciously aware of the divine energy that makes it be. 
Because if it was consciously aware that its very existence is a manifestation of divine energy, could it be clipper? can be clipper. To cover up the truth, the truth has to allow itself to be covered up. To be covered up. You can't cover up the truth if the truth is exposed. So what's the difference between Kedusha and Klippin? Kedusha, everything gets chiyos from Hashem. Everything comes from the Ein Saif. Everything gets life from Hashem. But in Kedusha, the life is integrated into the reality that is receiving the life. There's a conscious relationship. The flow is seamless. In Klippin, the life also flows. But it remains segregated. It remains more aloof. It's not integrated into the consciousness of Klippa. That's why Klippa could function in the imagination that it's completely detached from God. If the divine energy in Klippa would be integrated in the Klippa, one of two things would happen. Either it would cease to be Klippa, <laughs> it would become Kedusha, or on the other hand, if it wouldn't cease to be Klippa, it would abduct the holiness, it would abduct the energy, and swallow it up as well. The Koshnet Samagid, the Haley Koshnet Samagid, Avoidus Yisrael, in the beginning of Parshish Miketz, explains at length the dream of Parai, those two dreams of Parai, amazing. Parai has the seven, you remember? Parai has the seven, Parai dreams of the seven fat cows emerging from the Nile Delta. They're satiated, they're robust, they're well fed. And then there are the seven lean cows, emaciated skeletons that emerge from the river. And then what happens? The lean cows swallow up the fat cows to the point, you don't even see a trace of the fat cows and the lean cows. And then the same dream is repeated with the, with the stalks, with the stalks of grain. You have the robust stalks of grain, you have the emaciated stalks of grain, and the emaciated ones swallow up the other ones, and Yosef explains the meaning of it to referring to the seven years of famine, follow, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. You all know the story. We're going to learn it in a few weeks. Beis Yerusha. So the Heleke Kajnitz HaMagid, Yisrael of Kajnitz, Davidus Yisrael, explains, and the truth is in Torah, there's also a Maimon from the Alter Rebbe, at the end he refers to this. He says, this is the definition of how Paroi dreams about reality. Everything is filled with divine energy. <laughs> Everything is filled. What makes clip a clip is, the energy is there, but you don't see it. It gets swallowed up. And if it gets swallowed up, how does Kedusha give vitality to clip? A clip would stop existing. So that's why there always has to be a divine energy in Klippa, that remains higher. It remains infinite. It remains above the Kali. It's not fully internalized and integrated because only then can the Klippa continue to get nurture from the Kedusha without becoming obliterated and also without it squandering and swallowing up the Chiyos to the point that it's not recognizable anymore. That's why by Klippa there's always a number 11. The number 11 represents the energy that remains what's called makif, above, higher. In Kedusha, you don't need number 11. Why? Because Kedusha, the vessel, is transparent. It's open to the divine flow. Because it's open to the divine flow, because divine energy is fully integrated in the 10. The structure of life is 10. Hashem identified within His infinity 
Ten kaiches, ten spheres, ten characteristics. That's the structure of life. And through those, Hashem creates and sustains and relates to the universe. Every human soul is comprised of ten building blocks. The world is made up of ten building blocks, ten lights. They're called ten spheres. But there's a difference between the ten of Kedusha and the ten of Klippa. The ten of Kedusha, the divine energy, is fully integrated in the ten. So there's ten, there's no nine, there's no eleven. But in Klippa, the divine energy can't be fully integrated within the ten because then it wouldn't be Klippa. So there's ten, but there's always number eleven. Number 11 is that which remains transcendent. So it could give its energy to the clipper without the clipper being conscious of it because this level of energy is related to it through the superconscious. Because if clipper would relate to it consciously, it would not be clipper anymore. <laughs> if clipper screams, there's no clipper, it's Kedusha. For clipper to be clipper and yet live, so you have a paradox. You're living from God, and yet you think that you're detached from God. But in reality, your very ability to think that you're detached is coming from your relationship with God. <laughs> so how does that happen? You get it? Even your sense of separateness is being fueled from God. So that happens through number 11. Because number 11 relates to you, but it doesn't relate to you in a way that you're consciously aware of what you're receiving because this energy remains transcendent and that's why in Klippa there's always number 11 and in Kedusha there's no number 11. In Kedusha there's number 10. This is deep, this is deep. And it's very real. It's deep and real. But now let's understand something. This means... And this is really where it gets intense. That Esav has something over Yaakov. Kalipa has something over Kedusha. Because it has number 11. In Kedusha, the divine energy is always structured. It's integrated. In Kalipa, the energy can't be integrated. It remains above. So there's a certain infinity in the divine energy of Klippa that Kedusha doesn't have. The relationship of Klippa to it is only through the subconscious or through the superconscious, because it's above, it's higher. But it's something very, very intense, something very powerful, something very special. In other words, the fact that it's not integrated means that it's not structured, it's not condensed, it's not restricted. Therefore, it allows for the chaos of Klippa because it remains somewhat higher. But that itself means that there's something very, very divine about it that is never filtered. So here we come to the next step. V'hine ha-sitra achere hilo'umaz ad-gdusha. Sitra achere, the other side... Sitra Akhir, the other side, Huluma Zadakdusha, is always the counterbalance of holiness. Umizembovan. The Zeshabalumaza Yashpina Hayral of Shemovdalas Meha Eser, Yesh Gambik Dushalomaza, Shiyeshna Madrega Shalamaila Me Asasvidasum of Dalas Meha. Elashabikdusha Pchina Zuena Hachil Shalasasvidas. The Achil Shalasasvidas, Mislabish Betaikam Misachad Imam Kanal, Pchina Samak of Shalamaila Mesasvidas Suinian Laatsma. 
ולכן אין הנמנס עמם, אנטו חד ולא בחושבן. מה שאינקר בסתרה אחרה, שבחינס המקף הוא החיוס שלהם. צריך לכלול גם את המקף במספרם, כי בלי המקף אין להם חיוס, ולכן הם במספר אלף. Here we go to the next step. If in Klippa you have 11, in Kedusha you also have 11, because everything is Zelo Umaza. So just like you say in Kalipa, you have number 11, which is separated from the 10. It's aloof, it's higher, it's transcendent. And that's what gives the Chiyos Kalipa. In Kedusha, you also have that which is above the 10. There's 10 spheres, and then there's number 11. In Zoyar, it says, Antu chad You, Hashem, are one, and you're not part of the calculation of 10. That's the number 11, which is the pure, infinite light that transcends the 10. So why don't we count 11 in holiness? Because by Klippa, the 11 is what gives Chiyus to the 10, because it can't be integrated. So we count the 11. By holiness, this number 11 is not the vitality of the 10 spheres, because the vitality of the 10 spheres is completely one with them. It's part of the 10. This mock of this number 11 is completely aloof and it's separate. It's beyond the 10 spheres. By Klippa, number 11 is what vivifies the 10. Because without it, it wouldn't have chiyus. Without the makif, makif is this higher transcendent light, the klippa wouldn't have chiyus. So therefore, you're, they're counted as 11. Holiness is counted as 10 because the energy of the divine is completely one and integrated with the 10. But there is the concept of number 11. We don't call it number 11. We call it antu chad v'lob b'chushban. That oneness, it's completely beyond the 10. Alpiza moving. From this we understand, If so, the only way you can elevate the 11 crowns of impurity is you cannot do it through the 10 spheres of Kedusha. You have to find the number 11 of holiness. You have to find that which transcends the ten spheres. In Kabbalah, that's called Atik. You have the ten spheres. Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Guru, Teferis, Netzachai, Yisrael, Malchus. You have what's called Atik. Atik is also known as Pnimius HaKeser, the crown above the head. That parallels number 11 in Klippa. Number 11 in Klippa is above Klippa. Number 11 in Kedusha is completely above Kedusha. Above the ten spheres. The difference is by Klippa, number 11 is what gives Chiyus to the Klippa, because without it, it wouldn't live. By Kedusha, it gets Chiyus from the ten divine energies. Number 11 is completely a separate thing. In, but if you want to access the Kedusha of Esav, number 11, you're not going to get it through the ten spheres. You have to tune in to the Makiv that's higher than the ten spheres. Now, this needs a lot of explanation. What does this mean? And how do we bring this down to our lives? We have here an extraordinary blueprint of how Yaakov has to be, how Yaakov can elevate Esau. And how we elevate the Esau in ourselves. And how we elevate the Esau that may exist in other people. If I'm going to try to inspire Esau, through my own structured holiness, I'm never going to reach Esau. The only way I can reach Esau 
as if I'm ready to transcend my structured holiness and go to my own number 11. I have to go out completely of my spiritual comfort zone and go to my own number 11. And then I can find and accentuate Asaph's number 11, the 11th herb of the incense, and help him become cognizant of his own makkah, of his own divine makkah. As long as I remain within the confinements of my ten, which is amazing, that's the divine energy that's integrated into my system, but it's also filtered and condensed, I'll never be able to touch Asaph's holiness. Because Asaph's holiness is completely beyond structure. And I want to force Asaph to come into my structure and show him how beautiful it is. But that's not his godliness. His godliness is infinite. The tragedy is there's no consciousness of his godliness. So it's only when I'm ready. It's only when I'm ready to go out of my spiritual comfort zone. Only when I'm ready to say goodbye to my ten spheres. And go to Atik, to Antu Only when you have a relationship with Hashem that is completely beyond your structures, even your holy structures. Only when you're ready to strip yourself from everything that you call spiritual and holy and divine. And you ask not what God can do for you, but what you can do for God. And you ask not how Asaph can fit into your life, but you ask how you can transcend yourself and tune into the ultimate truth beyond your existence, that then Asaph can sense that light, because that's the light that he really has in a superconscious way. And that's how you can heal Asaph. And in that process of healing Esau, you heal yourself because you find a much deeper part of yourself that you would have never known about, which is number 11, Antuchad Ah! When you find number 11 in Kedusha, that number 11 attracts the number 11 in Klippah. That's the language, that's the frequency the clipper can relate to. Those are the sparks and Asaph that are very, very deep. So it's our relationship with Asaph that allows us to find number 11 in ourselves. And as we'll see in the next year, that this is unbelievably intimated in the words of Rivka, the way she speaks to Yaakov about taking the blessings. She puts in two words that her husband never said. Lifne Hashem, as we'll see in the next class. Which basically is teaching her son what he has to do. If he wants to take the blessings, which will ultimately sublimate Esau, which is going to heal the world. Somebody writes here, I have to listen to this again. I think it's too deep for my finite morning brain. So maybe you have to listen to it when your infinite evening brain emerges into the universe. 
What does transcending your 10 spheres look like in real life? Can you give an example? Yeah, I'm going to give more than one example, but not in this class, but Israel Hashem in the next class, Monday morning, because this needs, uh, this is the idea. We just learned the idea. As always, you can't understand chesedis if you don't apply it emotionally and you don't apply it psychologically, practically to your life. You can't understand it. It's just, you know, transcendent ideas. Some intellectual people may enjoy it, but you don't get it. Without experience, you don't get it. So we need not only one example, we need many examples. But Be'ezer uh, Hashem, we're going to work this through and uh, and answer the questions that are coming in. Doesn't it say that Yitzchak was fooled by Esau and so forth? We'll, we'll address it all, Be'ezer Hashem, in the next class. In the meantime, I'm going to wish you all a beautiful day. Stay tuned. Today, 2 o'clock, we have a uh, lecture with the South African Jewish community. It's on Zoom. It's also on the yeshiva.net. And the topic is, Can I Change Me? That's 2 o'clock today, New York time. Monday morning, 7.30, we're going to continue our discussion here, number 10, number 11. Please try to review so we can go to the next level and bring the 10 and fuse it with the 11 Beis Rasha. Oh, that was amazing. You're holding a shoifer. I was giving the Tuesday class to the women, which, by the way, it's Kedai to listen to. Why did the Christians choose a Jewish child as their deity? It was Yitzchak's blessing to Esau. And um, and I was speaking about a shoifer <laughs> in the tent, and suddenly from out of the tent, somebody was blowing shoifer. It was like a... <laughs> A revelation from heaven. It was pretty. Uh, it was pretty intense. Okay, Chaver. God bless. This class is brought to you by the Yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net/slash/donate.